Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 for our time of study in the Word uh, this morning. 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. Uh, This morning, I want us to finish the task that we started last Sunday, the task of taking stock here at the beginning of a new year, taking stock of some things that uh, clearly God wants to be precious to us uh, so that we can uh, lock onto those things and then arrange and build our lives accordingly in 2009 and beyond. Uh, actually, the burden that, uh, part of the burden that drives me to preach the message last Sunday and today uh, uh, comes from an observation about myself primarily about how easily distracted I can sometimes be, distracted away from things that are truly precious. And and then observing how those distractions can become habits in my own life, habits that are hard to break. And when I share that, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm personally a big fan of things that God says are precious. I'm a fan. I can talk a great game about those things. I can even preach sermons on those things that God says are precious. But I've noticed that I often let myself become wastefully occupied with unprecious things. And I give those unprecious things my time and my energy, hoping that at some point before the day ends, I can get around to doing some of the precious things. Things, but I discover on some days that I've run out of time and run out of energy to do the precious things that I had hoped to get around to. Does that happen to you? It's common. After all, there's a lot of unprecious things to occupy our attention, aren't there? There's playoff games to watch, there's TV series to binge. On and news to keep up with. There's a stock market to watch. There's money to make. There's an internet to surf and Instagram and Facebook posts to scroll through and an endless supply of short videos to make us laugh or cry, depending on what we're in the mood for. And if someone were to ask us about these things, we would probably all say that these things are not very precious to us, but we give a lot of our time to these things, so much so that there's often little time left over to spend with God, to do relationship building with our brothers and sisters in Christ, or to read the Word of God with our spouses and with our children or to engage in meaningful ministry to other people, or to dream big kingdom dreams and pray big kingdom prayers. So how about we not cheat ourselves out of such things in 2019? How about we wrap our minds around the things that are truly precious and then build our days around those precious things as a high priority, how about we do that? And then maybe our thought is that maybe, just maybe, we might have time by the end of the day for some unprecious things. But if not, who cares? If you're truly a Christian, you can actually think this way. It's in your spiritual DNA to actually make determinations about what is precious and what is not precious, and then to live accordingly. I can say this because true faith is designed by God not simply to believe something is true or real, but true faith also has within itself the capacity to embrace something as precious and then to behave accordingly. True faith embodies a value judgment of something as precious, where we make determinations that this is precious and this is not. This is why Jesus tells us the parable found in Matthew chapter 
13, verses 45 and 46, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And literally, the Greek is, he's just seeking good pearls. A merchant, and he's just looking for good, useful pearls. Verse 46, And upon finding one pearl of great value, that's palutamos, a word that we saw last Sunday. And what it means is a pearl of surpassing preciousness. He went out and sold all that he had and bought it. You see what the man does in this short little parable from Jesus? He doesn't find the precious pearl and then say, I believe this pearl exists. I believe this pearl is good. In fact, I think I shall sing some songs about this pearl and listen to some sermons on this pearl. Maybe one day I can get around to actually obtaining this pearl, but I'm just too busy right now with all the stuff I already have. He doesn't do that. Instead, he encounters the most precious thing he's ever seen, and suddenly everything else he owns becomes unprecious in the face of the preciousness of the pearl that he finds. He sells everything in order to have that precious pearl and all the benefits that it will bring him. True faith behaves in this way, in connection with the kingdom of God. True faith in Christ believes that Christ's kingdom is real and that it is good and that it is precious, more precious than anything else. And then true faith behaves accordingly. But in reality, in the reality of our day-to-day life, a question that I want all of us to ask ourselves is what is de facto precious to us at the moment? Not what should be precious to us. I don't, I don't want to hear the right answer, but what is in reality precious to you, And if you honestly want to know how to answer this question as you examine yourself, let me give you some ways to discern the answer of what is, in fact, precious to you at this moment in your life. One thing you can do is look at how you actually spend your time. We may say that certain things are not precious to us, but the amount of free time that we spend on them indicates that they are, in fact, precious Also, look at the things that you take the most joy in, the things that you talk about the most with other people. Look at the things that you work the hardest at. Another way to know what is precious to you is to look at your anxieties and your anger. Most of the time we get angry, it's because something that is precious to us is being violated by someone. Most of the time we are anxious, it's because we fear that something precious to us is threatened or vulnerable, and so we're anxious. You want to know what your precious is? Take a good long look at your anger and your anxieties. Here's a way to learn what is most precious to you. I dare you to do this. Ask your spouse or your children, or a close friend, what they think is most precious to you. They watch how you live. They listen to how you talk. They see your attitudes. What would they say is actually most precious to you? Ask them that and tell them to be honest with you. Another way to know what is most precious to you is to listen to the arguments that you have with other people, including your spouse, if you are married. What are you arguing about and why are you arguing so hard? What are you trying to accomplish or protect with your arguments? Whatever it is, you can know that is precious to you. If we're really honest with ourselves and we ask ourselves these questions, we could probably make an honest-to-goodness list that represents the truth about what is, at this time, most precious 
to us, and we would probably discover that what is most precious to us is different than what we would have professed at the outset. Maybe this kind of honesty will serve to prepare us to listen to God and to hear him tell us what should be most precious to us. And that's what we're trying to do here at the start of this new year. And we're letting the Apostle Peter help us with this. As I said last Sunday, if you read First Peter and actually just the first four verses of Second Peter, you will find eight mentions of the word precious if you're reading uh, certain translations of these epistles. And we're letting Peter's use of this term precious And his two epistles give us perspective on what should be most precious to us. Last week, we looked at three treasures that we should deem precious. And today, we will look at three more after taking a few minutes to review the first three that we looked at last week. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at six treasures in total this morning that we should deem precious in 2019. And the first three of these will go through rather quickly. Treasure number one is proven faith. Proven faith. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter speaks about the riches of our salvation. And then he says, beginning in verse 6, In this, in this salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious, palutimus, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. According to this passage, faith in Christ is precious, but not just any faith. Peter teaches us here that a tested and a proven faith is precious to God and should be precious to us as well. And if this is true, then even the trials that come into our lives that test our faiths should be deemed precious to us as well because they purify and they prove our Faith, so that our proven faith might result in Christ receiving glory and honor in the day of his resurrection. There's a second thing we learned last Sunday that we should deem precious in 2019, and that is the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter gives the following counsel that is centered on the estimation of Christ's blood as precious. Listen to what he says in verse 17 through 19. He says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but here's what you were redeemed with but with precious blood, timios, with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Christ's blood is precious to us because of who it came from. It is precious because of what it does. It redeems us. It delivers us from our futile way of life inherited from our ancestors, first by providing atonement for all of the sins that we have committed throughout our lifetime and by purchasing us for God so that we are now owned and operated by God and not by our lusts any longer. If you truly believe, I mean, if you learn to believe that Christ's blood is precious and you learn to reason from that reality, then other things will automatically become precious to you as a result. You'll view holiness as precious, knowing the price God paid for you to be holy. You'll view sexual purity as precious, knowing the price that God paid for you 
and others to be pure. You will view the church and your fellow Christians as precious, knowing that they were purchased by Christ's precious blood. You will view God's mission to glorify himself in the church and through the church as precious because you will know that God shed the precious blood of his son to fulfill that mission. You will view giving sacrificially to the Lord's work as precious, knowing the price that he paid for his work to be done. You will view evangelizing the lost as precious because evangelism is essentially you sharing the gospel with others in order to discover those whom Christ has purchased for God with his blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Evangelism is essentially a search for precious ones. And the way to find out who those precious ones are is to give them the gospel and then you will discover who they are by their response. Elders, if you view Christ's blood as precious, then you will be all the more diligent to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood or with the blood of his own, his own son. Husbands and wives, you will view your marriage as precious, knowing that your marriage is designed by God to put on display the self-giving love that Christ showed at the cross where he shed his blood. You see how we can reason just from the preciousness of Christ's blood and that instantly begins to assign a value to a number of other things that can give shape to our priorities and how we live our lives. And if you believe, in addition to all of these things, that Christ's blood is precious, then you would never, ever be in any doubt again that you yourself are precious to God as a Christian. Christ's blood shed for you guarantees that you will always and forever be precious to God. And this knowledge will give you confidence in his love. After all, how could God ever fail to hear the cry of someone purchased by the blood of his precious son? How could God fail to give a blood-bought follower of Christ anything that he or she ever needs for life and godliness? How could God ever let a blood-bought child of his suffer needlessly in any way that does not lead to their greater good and glory? Were God to ever fail even one of his blood-bought children in any of these ways, it would be an insult to his own son who shed his blood for them. And God loves his son way too much to ever fail you in the slightest of ways. You see how that'll help you? Sometimes we think that God is good to us to the degree that he loves us. And somehow his love of us is determined by how lovable we're being on a given day. And well, I'm not being very lovable. I failed so much. And so God may not love me very much today. No, God loves his son so much that he treats you the way that he does because you were purchased as a Christian with the blood of his son. That never changes from day to day. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We know that's true. When we invest money in things, our heart follows our investment. We love whatever it is that we're putting our money into. I've noticed over the years when I pay our kids' uh, college bills, which are huge, uh, after I make the payment, I love the school they're going to. And just feel all the more of a burden to pray for that school and want it to do well. Because where my treasure is, that's where my heart goes. Well, God's most precious treasure has been poured out for you and for your redemption. And that guarantees that God's heart will forever be with you, fully committed to your everlasting good. And his blood is what should help us to know that that is true. There's a third thing that we learned 
about last Sunday that should be precious to us in 2019, and that is Christ himself. Christ himself, speaking of Jesus Christ, whose kindness we have tasted. Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 2, and starting in verse 4, and continually coming to him as to a living stone, speaking of Jesus, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious, intimus, in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, speaking of Jesus. And God says, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Peter then says this precious value, this Timae, this precious value then is for you who believe. We learn in these verses that Christ is obviously precious to his father and that he should be precious to us as well. We learn that he is, in fact, a precious person of infinitely high value and that the precious value that is in him is for us, made available for us who believe in him. We also learn in these verses that as we keep on continuously coming to Jesus and treasuring him, we find ourselves being built together by God into an organized community in which we all can function as priests who serve and worship the Lord together. So guys, let's make Christ precious to us this year. His person, his mission, his values, his commandments, his word, his example, his sweet invitations to us that are all over the gospels. And let's live our lives Accordingly, there's a fourth treasure that we should deem precious in 2019. And we find this treasure mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 3. And the fourth treasure is this, a gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle and quiet spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 3 and 4, Peter is calling upon women who are married to imperfect husbands to beautify themselves. By the way, if you're a woman and you're married, um, if you're married to an imperfect husband, just raise your hand. No one's looking around. (laughs) What? Raise your hand. Just say, I have an imperfect. He's somewhere shy of perfection. Just raise your hand. I see those hands. He's talking to women who are married to imperfect husbands, and he's calling upon them to beautify themselves. And in that call, he is calling upon them not to rely on external things to be what makes them beautiful. He says in verse three, your adornment, in other words, what makes you beautiful must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. The word translated precious here is a different word than the one that we have been seeing thus far in 1 Peter, but its meaning is essentially the same. It speaks of something that would fetch a very high price in God's economy. This word could be translated as most precious or most valuable in the sight of God. What this means is that this kind of spirit, a gentle and quiet spirit, catches the eye of God. It's beautiful to him. God enjoys it the way someone would enjoy looking at a beautiful gem. God also finds such a spirit most valuable and he uses it as currency in order to accomplish things that he wants to accomplish on earth because God can accomplish much and move mountains with such a spirit. 
as a gentle and a quiet spirit. A gentle spirit is a spirit that is kind and friendly as opposed to one that is rough or bad-tempered. The word actually implies power. Some commentators define this word as power under control, and that's a decent definition, but it's only part of the definition of this term. This word in the New Testament often speaks of someone who has been hurt. They have been wronged, and they know that they have the power in themselves to inflict hurt in return, but they restrain their power so as not to inflict the hurt that they could inflict, and instead they use their power to do good to the very person whom they could have hurt. Does that make sense? A quiet spirit is a spirit that is calm and peaceful as opposed to one that is rebellious and vindictive. This word quiet doesn't mean someone who has a quiet spirit is not someone who never talks. It means that even when they do talk, they speak from a place of submission to authority and quiet confidence in God, whom they know has their back. And Peter here is calling upon wives in their marriages to imperfect husbands to adorn themselves, to beautify themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit, which he says is precious in the sight of God. Even if your husband doesn't notice God notices, and you've caught his eye, and you can enjoy being beautiful for him. By the way, some men might hear what Peter is saying here to wives and say, preach it, Peter. Tell my wife that she needs to have a gentle and quiet spirit. We can use more of that in our marriage. Actually, men, if you read through the entirety of the New Testament, you will see that every Christian is called to have a gentle and quiet spirit. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the gentle. Same word that Peter calls upon wives to have in 1 Peter 3. In Matthew eleven nine, 9, Jesus says, Learn from me, for I am gentle. Same word. And he's a man. In Galatians 5.23, gentleness is given as one of the fruits of the Spirit for all Christians, not just women, but men included. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul speaks of all Christians living a tranquil and quiet life. That word quiet is the same word used in 1 Peter 3. A tranquil and quiet life and all godliness and dignity. Based on these and other passages in the New Testament, all Christians are to live their lives with gentleness, exhibiting gentleness and quietness. No one can argue with the fact that God finds these qualities just as precious and beautiful in men as he finds them in women. But here's the rub for me and for you. We all tend to think that a gentle and quiet spirit is a lovely idea until someone wrongs us. And when we are wronged, we want to do the opposite of being gentle and quiet in response, right? And in those moments, we imagine that being rough and loud is the most powerful thing to do. That's what we want to do, and we imagine how powerful It would be if we could do that. But then we think, man, I want to do the powerful thing of being rough and loud and mean and vindictive in this situation. But God tells me in this word, I have to be gentle and quiet instead. So I guess I have to settle for this lame response of being gentle and quiet. Peter says, no, you're not thinking right It's just the opposite. A gentle and quiet spirit is not some lame response. It's the powerful response. It's the response that is precious in the sight of God. And you know why it is? You know why Peter would talk this way to us? 
because you never look more like Jesus than you do in such moments when you exhibit gentleness and a quietness of spirit and because God can use that spirit to do mighty things and move mountains just like he did with Jesus. When Jesus was being crucified, he didn't verbally lash out at those who were crucifying him. Read 1 Peter chapter 2 where Peter talks about that. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't revile in return. But instead, he actually prayed for his enemies. And while he was on the cross more than once, it says he was saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He actually prayed as the advocate for his enemies that God would forgive them. Was that a lame response on Jesus' part? Not hardly. Because what did God do in response? God raised him from the dead and vindicated him and gave Jesus the ultimate position of power at his own right hand. And shortly thereafter, some of the very people who crucified Jesus were repenting of their sin and believing in Jesus as their Lord and Savior in Acts chapter 2 within two months of having crucified him. Turns out that responding with gentleness and quietness of spirit is not some lame thing after all. Never underestimate how powerfully precious a gentle and a quiet or peaceful spirit is and never underestimate what God can do with one of his sons or daughters who exhibit these qualities in response to wrongs that are done against them. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to make a bold prediction for 2019. So get your pens out. I don't normally prophesy like this, but it's coming on me right now and I got to speak it. Every one of you will be sinned against by someone this year. I know. I'm really going out there on this one, but every one of you will be sinned against by multiple people this year. And the question is, how will you respond in those moments when you are wronged? Will you respond with retaliation and vindictiveness? Will you respond with gentleness? Or peacefulness? Will you lose your mind in such situations? Or will you put your hope in God and know that He has your back? Will you preach the gospel to yourself in such moments and remind yourself of how you have sinned against God and how He has exhibited incredible gentleness towards you? He could have hurt you eternally. But instead, he used his power to do good, to send his son to die, to give you salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Will you remind yourself of your sins against God and what God has done in giving you his grace in such moments? Will you let, in those moments when you are wrong, will you let the headline of that situation always be about the sins that the other person has committed against you? Or will you steal the headlines and change the story into one of forgiveness and grace? Will you view as precious the opportunities to display a gentle and peaceful spirit in the face of wrongs this year? I mean, think about it this way. If God's gospel plan for the ages that was hatched before the foundations of the earth were even laid, if his plan for the ages was all about glorifying himself by showing his mercy toward sinful people who had sinned against him, if that's what history is all about, then why wouldn't we view offenses against us as precious opportunities for us to put that part of his image on display. 
There's another treasure that we should prize as precious in 2019, and we find this one in 2 Peter chapter 1. So I would encourage you to turn a page or two over to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to call this treasure apostolic faith. Apostolic faith. In the New American Standard, which is the translation that uh, that I use in Second Peter chapter one verse one, Peter opens his letter to his readers by saying, "Look at verse one: Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ." And as for those to whom he is writing, the New American Standard translation has Peter saying that he's writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as our ours. I love the New American Standard. Uh, it's the translation I use, but I will admit that this translation fails to capture the fullness of Peter's meaning here in this expression. The Greek text has Peter literally describing his readers as those who have received isotomous faith with us. Look at that word on the screen. Anything inside that word look familiar to you? Yes, timos. The word timos, which is the same root word that we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1 and three times in 1 Peter chapter 2. As we've seen, the word timos in this passage means precious and the isa or iso at the beginning means same or of like kind. And as a result... Uh, translations, other translations out there do capture Peter's meaning in a better way than what I think the New American Standard does. Young's literal translation translates the statement this way, to those who did obtain a like precious faith with us. The New King James and King James essentially say to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. The NIV says to those who have received a faith as precious as ours. And I think this is exactly what Peter is trying to say here. Peter viewed the faith that he had received from God as precious, and he viewed the faith that God had given to his readers as precious as well. And he says so here to them in verse 1. By the way, notice how Peter describes this faith as something that is received. You might want to mark that word. It's not just something exercised, but received as a gift. This alerts us to the fact that faith in Christ is not something that we generate on our own. None of us can say, you know, I heard the gospel and I had the good sense to believe in Christ. I don't know what everyone else's problem is. I'm glad I had the smarts to see things as they really were. No, we were spiritually dead and unable to have faith, but God regenerated us, brought us to life, and gave us the gift of faith to even believe in Christ. Do you believe that? Some people depict faith in Christ as they use the analogy of a drowning person making a choice to grab hold of a life preserver that is tossed to him. You're drowning, life preserver is tossed out to you, grab it before you die. But that image actually fails to take into account the true severity of our condition apart from Christ. According to the New Testament, an unsaved person isn't drowning. They're dead already, dead in their trespasses and sins and unable to even respond to gospel mercy. So as R.C. Sproul says in a way that I love, in saving a person, listen to this, in saving a person, God doesn't just throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls a corpse from the bottom of the sea and takes him up on the bank, breathes into him the breath of life and makes him alive. And in the process of doing that, God gives to that 
once formerly dead person the gift of faith to believe in Christ. And this is the kind of giving and receiving of faith that Peter is speaking about here in verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 1. As to this faith, Peter says that we have received this faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This faith came to us by virtue of God's righteousness, not our own. And with this faith came the gift of righteousness that we call justification, where God declares us righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. It's for this reason that Peter calls the faith and the heart of his readers a like precious faith with us. Let's linger on this expression for a bit. Who is the us? In the comparison that Peter is making, Peter wants his readers to know that they have received a faith that is precious, but he wants them to know that it's as precious as the faith of others. But who is the us in this comparison? Some interpreters say that the us is Peter and his fellow Jews to whom salvation came first. And this is almost certainly a part of Peter's idea. But keep in mind that Peter has just referred to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So when he speaks of his readers as having received a like precious faith with us, the us in that comparison is most likely Peter and his fellow Apostles. In fact, later in this very chapter, Peter will use the pronoun we twice to speak of himself and his fellow apostles who witness Christ at his transfiguration. We see that in verse 16. If this is the case, then what we have here is Peter speaking as an apostle to Christians living a few decades, maybe 30 or so years after the death and resurrection of Christ and the birth of the church in Acts 2. And the comparison that Peter is making here is between the apostles who had been eyewitnesses of the original revelation and the Christians of the second or even third generation thereafter to whom Peter is writing this letter. And Peter evidently is wanting his readers to know that their faith in Christ is just as legit just as precious as his faith was together with the faith of the other apostles. And this encouragement would have meant a ton coming from Peter of all people. I, I, would, I have no doubt that Peter's readers looked up to Peter as a hero of sorts. How could they not? They probably saw him as an elite, super Christian And not without very good reason. Peter was among the 12 that were hand-picked by Jesus. And got to be eyewitnesses of his teaching and his miracles for three years. And then among the 12, there was a very special three. Peter, James, and John, who were the only three who got to be eyewitnesses of his majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. And of those three, those special three apostles was Peter himself, who was the most prominent apostle and the leader of the church at its inception. It was Peter who got to preach the first sermon in Acts 2 on the birthday of the church. And he saw 3,000 souls come to faith in Christ in response to that sermon that he preached on that day. It was through Peter that the lame man at the temple was healed to the amazement of everyone. We're told in Acts 5 that people thereafter were scrambling to just get close enough to Peter so that merely his shadow might fall on them and they might be healed. Imagine that. And this is Peter who is writing this letter to readers decades after these events. 
And Peter looks at his readers and he looks at you and me even 2,000 years later and he refers to us as those who have received a like precious faith as what he received. A faith that is equal in value, equal in privilege, status, and rank. One that carries equal privileges. This kind of language from Peter means that there is no distinction between believers within a particular age and from age to age, from the apostolic age even down to today, not even between the original apostles and Christians of all ages ever since. In terms of the rights and the privileges granted to us through faith in Christ, our own faith in Jesus, your faith in Jesus is no less of a miracle and no less precious than what was given to the Apostle Peter himself. We stand before God on equal footing with the Apostle Peter, and Peter wants us to know that. This means that there's no law of diminishing returns when it comes to faith in Christ from generation to generation. The faith that God gives to a Christian today grants forgiveness of sins and justification and access to God and the full rights of sonship and provision for life and godliness to the exact same extent that God had granted to Peter and to his fellow apostles. And now you and I have opportunity to go to others and preach Christ to others and call them to faith in Christ. And when they do believe, we can tell them that the faith that they have received from God to believe in Christ is just as valuable, just as precious as our faith is that we receive from God and just as precious as the apostles' faith was. And we can relish together the equal preciousness of our faith and theirs. So I ask you, will you cherish your faith in Christ as precious this year? Will you cherish the apostolic faith and devote yourself to the apostles' teaching in the New Testament? Will you read and study your Bible and seek to conform your doctrine and your practice to the teaching of the apostles? Will you cherish the faith that Christ gives to others as precious as well, no matter how small or weak their faith may be? Will you make no distinctions between you and other believers Will you celebrate their faith as being as precious as yours? Will you seek to nurture this precious gift of faith within you at every turn? And will you seek to nurture the faith of others also as you fellowship together with them? I trust you will. It's because Peter saw the preciousness of the faith of his readers that his heart immediately overflows toward his readers into one of the richest expressions of goodwill found anywhere in the New Testament, wherein he wants his readers to know that they are fully entitled to experience God's goodness to the fullest extent imaginable. In the process, he alerts them and us to yet another precious treasure that is ours to enjoy in Christ. And this brings us to the sixth treasure that we should deem precious in 2019. And that is, let's word it this way, the experience of fulfilled promises in Christ. The experience of fulfilled promises in Christ. Viewing the faith of his readers as being equally precious as his own, Peter speaks as a privileged apostle, and he says to his readers, listen to these words, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing, I can say this, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, you guys and us apostles, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us, you guys and us, apostles, by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious 
There's the word precious, timios. His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. In verse 3, Peter tells us that God's divine power is granted to us everything, everything we need for life and for godliness, holding nothing back. And he tells us that all this provision comes through the true knowledge of Jesus. In other words, through an intimate relational knowing of God and his son, Jesus Christ. To say it another way, God's provision for you and for me to live a godly life passes from him to us through the channel of us simply experiencing Jesus and knowing him relationally. Peter then describes Jesus as the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. He called us by his own glory and excellence. Think about what that means. As one writer says, it means that Christ drew men to himself through the the attractive power of his own glory. And there was no resisting his beauty. That's what Peter is speaking about here. He's saying to his readers, this is how we apostles and how you were effectually called and drawn to Christ. Not so much through a fear of eternal hell, but through the beauty of his glory and the excellence of his person. That's how you were drawn to him. It gets even better than this. Sometimes it happens that you might be drawn to a person who seems attractive to you, but once you enter into a relationship with them, you become sorely disappointed. That person turns out to be not everything you thought that they were after all. But that's not what happens to us with Jesus. Notice what Peter says next. Once we came to Christ being drawn by the charms of his own glory and the excellence of his person, we find that by these, by these, and notice that prepositional phrase there, by these, in other words, through Christ's glory and through his excellence, God's divine power has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Think about what it means that God's divine power has actually granted to us his precious and magnificent promises by means of Christ's glory and excellence. Even in English, we use the language of promise in two different ways. For example, I can be talking to you and tell you I'm going to do something and I could say to you, I give you my promise. And what I mean by that And that conversation is that I'm right now making a promise to you that will be fulfilled later, right? But in another context, I may have already made a promise to you. And after that, I may come to you and say, I am granting you my promise. I'm giving you my promise. And what I mean by that in that conversation is that I'm actually giving you the fulfillment of the earlier promise that I had made to you. And guys, many interpreters would say that's the meaning of Peter's language here in verse 4. In verse 4, Peter says, For by these, in other words, by means of the glory and the excellence of Christ, God's divine power has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. And saying this, Peter is saying that through the glory and the excellence of Christ that we experience, God thereby grants to us the fulfillment of the most precious and magnificent promises that God ever made. In his commentary on this passage, One commentator, D. Edmund Hebert, says, In him, in Christ, the things promised have their fulfillment. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of the messianic salvation. Think about the promises of God in Genesis 3.15. 
God promised that one would arise who would crush the head of the serpent. God promised in Genesis 12 that through Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God promised in Isaiah 53 that he would send a servant who would suffer and die as a guilt offering for the sins of the people. God promised in the prophets to take away our heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh such that we would love him and actually desire to obey him and to walk in his ways. God promised that anyone who believes in Jesus will not be disappointed. He says that in the Old Testament. Anyone who believes in him will not be disappointed when he comes. Jesus promised that those who come to him, he will never cast them out and they will never hunger or thirst for anything else again, but he will give them eternal life that will be not only filling them, but pouring out of them. All of these promises and so many more promises are granted to us The fulfillment of them are granted to us in Christ. God's precious promises are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And we receive the fulfillment of God's most precious promises as we experience the glory and the excellency of the person of Christ himself. This means that if you want to experience in your own life the actual fulfillment of God's most precious and magnificent promises this year, you don't have to go to 20 different places to get that. All you need to do is believe in Jesus and truly know him, and you will find in Jesus the fulfillment of the grandest promises that God has ever made. And you will also find that the fulfillment of God's greatest promises still to come are experienced only in Christ. And as we experience the fulfillment of God's precious promises in Christ, Peter tells us that we become partakers of the divine nature. We're elevated into that experience and we experience escape from the corruption that is in the world by lust. Don't you want that? No longer will the world and its lust be dragging us downward and controlling us. It'll be Christ's glory and his excellence that controls us and takes us deeper into the fulfillment of God's goodness expressed in the fulfillment of his great and precious promises. So I ask you this morning as we close, what will be precious to you this year? Will proven faith in Christ be precious to you? Will the blood of Christ be precious to you? Will Christ himself be precious to you? Will a Christ-like gentle and quiet spirit be precious to you in the face of wrongs? Will the apostle, the apostolic faith in Christ be precious to you? Will the experience of the promises of God fulfilled in Christ be precious to you? And will you arrange your life accordingly this year? I hope you will. And I ask that you pray for me that I will also, if we do this, then I know that we will have a spiritually successful year. And that's what God wants for all of us, I know. I'll close with this. You guys have, many of you have heard of David Brainerd. He was a missionary to Native Americans back in the 1700s. In 1745, he preached Christ to a group of Native Americans in the New Jersey area. And on August 9th, 1745, David Brainerd wrote these words in his journal describing their reaction to his preaching of Christ. He says, there were many tears among them while I was discoursing publicly. Some were much affected with a few words spoken to them in a powerful manner, which caused the persons to cry out in anguish of soul. What made them cry out in anguish of soul? This is what fascinated David Brainerd and what he found so remarkable He says, as he continues, that they cried out in anguish of soul, although I spoke not a word of terror, but on the contrary, just set before them the fullness and all sufficiency of Christ's merits 
and his willingness to save all that come to him. David Brainerd simply preached the fullness and the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ, and suddenly these Native Americans were awakened to how much they had been suffering all along in living apart from this Christ. And they considered it an intolerable suffering to live one more hour apart from this one being described to them. If you're here today and you are living apart from Jesus, you may not realize it right now, but you are suffering. You're suffering in ways that you don't even know. But if you come to Jesus in faith, Today, And if you learn to keep coming to him and experiencing the precious value that is in him, I guarantee you within a few days, you will wonder how you ever survived a day apart from him. Jesus is a good savior. He's a zealous savior. And he stands ready to receive you to himself this morning so that you can experience his fullness and his sufficiency in 2019 and throughout all of eternity. If you've never believed in Jesus, I plead with you to come to him today. Call upon his name as your Lord and Savior and let this new year begin with you finding that Jesus is truly the most precious treasure of all. And for those of you that are Christians, you and I have the greatest treasure of all in Jesus Christ. Let's live like that is true this year. Let's pray together. Lord, we fall so far short of the very ideals that we're called to in our passages that we've been looking at last week and this week. The part of your glory is manifested in your grace. And so we we repent, we confess. all the ways that we dishonor your name and fail to recognize the preciousness that is Jesus. And we appreciate his blood all the more to whatever degree we failed knowing that we have grace and forgiveness that he has purchased for us. He is a savior who never lets us down and who always grants forgiveness and grace when we let him down. He's the perfect savior for sinners like us. Lord, if you could open the windows of heaven, if you could remove the scales from our eyes and just help us to see the glory of Jesus, the glory of these things that you're telling us are precious we would be impacted forever by that. But we know that's a miracle of sight. And I ask that you would do a miracle in my eyes and in the eyes of everyone in this room. Lord, help us to see, as we've never seen before, your glory and your preciousness and the preciousness of these things in a way that that is transforming and immediately just brings about a reassessment of all values in light of this discovery. If there's any here today, Lord, that have never called upon your name for salvation, I'm asking you to touch their hearts today and save them that they might call upon your name and believe in you today. May salvation come into this room and happen 
even now. May it be that a year from now we can ask those closest to us. We could say to them, hey, you've watched how I've lived. You hear how I talk. What is most precious to me? And that their answer to us would be something close to the list that we have seen in Peter's epistles. And I know I have growing to do and repenting to do for this to be a reality and I I ask for this work of grace in me and in all of us, Lord. You're a good Savior and that's why we can come to you in confession and making these requests. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to give of our offerings to you and return to you a portion of what you have blessed us with. We pray that you would take the funds that are given in this offering and that you would do much with all that is given, that the ministry of Christ would go forward here in this community and, and around the world. It's such a privilege, Lord, to give to your work, and we thank you for this precious privilege to give to you right now. So we give and we worship in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,